and welcome to a new episode of From the Honeycomb Podcast. I am your host, Katerina Burenova. Each week, we dive into a blend of topics that resonate with the soul. Whether you're an architect enthusiast, have a passion for wanderlust, want to discover holistic approaches to rejuvenate your body and mind, or are intrigued to learn about Vastu Shastra with a modern approach, you've come to the right place. Join me as I sit down with inspiring, like-minded women from various walks of life. We will delve into their journeys to discuss the challenges and moments that define their paths. So sit back, relax, and let the spark of positive energy ignite your curiosity. Today I am joined by Haley Duggins, an emerging professional in architecture and host of Nearly One Fourth Podcast, an architectural podcast dedicated to sharing the journey of women in architecture. Haley, welcome to From the Honeycomb. Thank you. I'm so excited to be on today. Excited to have you. And as you know, we begin every episode by sharing something that we are grateful for in the present moment. So what are you grateful for? Man, I was thinking about this all morning (laughs) because there's so much. I am really just grateful for 2024 starting off slow. 2023 was a year of really large changes for me and my husband and family and school and career. So I'm just happy to be in a moment of bliss and slowness. Oh, I love that. And it does feel like that 2024, the first week was kind of like everybody's figuring it out. And then now the second week, we're moving through it the year, but it doesn't seem like it's such a rush, rush, rush. Yeah, it does. I agree. Yeah. Good. And so, yeah, so Haley, share with us, share with the listeners where are you on your architecture journey, but then also what has led you to the moment now? Yeah, so I graduated with my master's from Clemson in May of 2023, so seven months ago, and I started at a firm in Cincinnati, and I worked there for about five months, and it wasn't a fit (laughs) for a lot of different reasons, and I recently switched jobs, which was a little wild to switch jobs so quickly, but I am currently working on licensure, so I am about two-thirds done with my experience requirements. I just started studying using Amber Book, which is a visual-based tutoring platform. And I'm hoping to take exams this summer and be licensed by the end of 2024. That is my 2024 goal. So that's where I'm at right now. Nice. I did use Amber Books. Amber Books was a great – because it's interesting. You start to learn what kind of studier you are. Because really the last time we studied as architects is in high school. Yeah. Because architecture school, yeah, we had some structure exams, but really you were presenting projects, you're working on drawings, you're making models. So you're more of a visual learner as Mm -hmm. well, it sounds like. Yeah, I am. And Amber Book has been really good for that. I just started literally like within the last week and it starts with a thermal section. And you learn thermal stuff in graduate school, but it feels so Mm -hmm. out of reach when our professors are teaching it. And however... That Michael Ehrman has like really figured mm-hmm. out how to dilute that information and make it not seem as challenging. It's not as hard as I thought it was. It seems so much <laughs> harder and impossible in school. <laughs> no, for sure. It's definitely different. And then in practice, because what I like is while you're studying for the exams, you can start to apply it to projects at work. And that makes the learning, it just makes it easier. Like that helped me a lot. Like once I started getting into the PDD and PPD, when you're drawing Mm -hmm. details and stuff like that, 
Then I started to look at the projects I'm working on. I'm like, oh, well, this makes sense. Now I can apply what I'm learning. Whereas in school, you're learning it, but you're like, you learn it, but then you don't apply it. So it doesn't fuse in the brain, I think, as well. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. And what made you want to become an architect? Man, part of it was kind of a leap of faith. Back in undergrad when I was look or in high school when I was looking for undergraduate schools, I originally was interested in mechanical engineering. My dad is a mechanical engineer, but his career path has always been decently design oriented for mechanical engineer. He doesn't work in buildings. He's worked in toys and machining and just a wide variety of stuff. And I always enjoyed how his day-to-day job just seemed different. So he wasn't in this like mundane routine of doing the same thing. But as I was researching schools, I just felt like there was something missing. And honestly, my dad was like, why don't you just check out architecture? And I grew up in a family that was like engineering and construction. So it just felt like it fit. I applied for architecture school at Bowling Green State in Northern Ohio. And I got in there and I went there and just day one fell in love with everything that it had to offer. So from day one, I was very much like, I'm going to become a licensed architect. This is everything I want to do. And I love design school. I loved getting my master's. So it was kind of a leap of faith jumping into it. And then once I was there, it felt like a very natural fit for me. Wow. Oh, that's perfect. And that's so great that you were already like in architecture school. Because I know some people, and I've talked with other architects on the podcast, is sometimes architecture school, it's intimidating. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot coming at you. There's the late nights. It's a lot. Just, yeah, it's just a lot from coming from high school. And so the fact that you you enjoyed it so much. But what was architecture school like for you? Man, it was brutal. My undergrad was worse than my grad school. I feel like whatever tone you set your freshman year is like the way you carry yourself for four years because it's just this internal unrealistic expectation that you set for yourself. And then grad school, I definitely changed the tone. But from day one, I was just so excited. And Bowling Green's a decently small architecture school. There's probably 200 people from first year through grad school. And there's seven to 10 faculty members at any given time. So I had a lot of rotating professors. But the freshman or the first year studio was so small. All 50 of us were in there every single night drafting. Everything at Bowling Green is hand done your first year and a half. So there's no computers or anything like that. So we're just in there till two, three in the morning drafting and making a mess and having so much fun. So it was great. But the whole four years, I mean, my first two years, I was all into the all-nighters. As many all-nighters as I could do for whatever reason, I just like couldn't. It wasn't necessarily a goal of mine, but I couldn't get to a point where I wasn't pulling all-nighters. Like the workload was just so much. And then my sophomore year, I stayed up. I didn't pull all-nighters, but like two or three nights in a row, I stayed up to like four or five in the morning. And I slept for like three hours. And on like the third night, I got just so sick. I got so incredibly sick in studio. And I had one of my friends who had a car on campus drive me back to my dorm. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. So my junior and senior year, I definitely still had late nights. But I made it a point to not do as many all-nighters and pull longer weekends and things. So my first four years were pretty brutal. And then at graduate school, I was like, I'm going to eat two meals a day sleep six to seven hours a night. Like that was the whole goal. And for the most part, I was able to stick to that. My first semester at Clemson was a lot more challenging than I had anticipated. So there was more late nights than I was hoping for, but there was no all-nighters. There was just really late nights less frequently. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I maybe in total pulled three all-nighters. That's pretty good. Because it is good, but it's because the first time I experienced an all-nighter, 
it was like an out-of-body experience for me. And like, I mean, you're just, I was on so much caffeine. Yeah. And I remember standing, presenting the project and I was like, I think I'm going to have a heart attack. And it's like, so I ended up, I was more like you with once you, like later on where I would stay up late, get a few hours, but then wake up early. Like just get at least a few hours, four hours in because then Mm -hmm. at like, once you're presenting, I would just stand there. I'm like, I don't know what's happening to my body right now. <laughs> like my body's here, but like I'm elsewhere. Yeah. So it, that's incredible though. And it's great that you ended up learning it and yeah. seeing what your body can take and and the stress of it. And I like hearing that your school did hand drafting. Yes. Which I think is so, so important. And my school, so I went to Illinois Tech in Chicago and we drafted our first year Second year, we went to computers. Even like first year, we started doing computer, like AutoCAD. But by the time I was a third or fourth year student, the freshmen weren't drafting anymore by yeah. hand. I don't know if it's changed for your, the incoming classes if you saw later on, but they go to computers now. I noticed that they were required to have drafted projects, but they were pre-doing their stuff in like SketchUp and then they would print it and then oh. draft over it. And I was, my junior and senior year, I was a teaching assistant for the first years. And I told them, I'm like, you know, the purpose of this is not to be some annoying drawing exercise. The purpose is for you to understand what you're seeing and visualizing. And if you're modeling it, you don't understand how things work and model compared to real life. And if you're Mm -hmm. going out of your way to avoid learning how things look in real life, I feel like in five to 10 years, we're going to have architects that don't understand a basic perspective because they printed and traced over it. Um, So they were still required to do drafting-based assignments, but they found little workarounds to not do it. (laughs) Problem solving, which is for them. That is, you know, architecture is about problem solving, but you're so right about it, about the not knowing how to draw perspective. Yeah, it's a huge deal. And I really liked drafting. I took, they, they do like AutoCAD and Revit courses during the first year there. So you're not completely out of touch with the technology. Mm-hmm. But just in general, I sometimes wish we could go back to drafting because now I spend 15 hours a day on a screen versus before mm-hmm. I spent 12 hours a day ignoring my phone, drafting, really understanding the product that I'm creating. And at the end of the day, like maybe I spent like 20 minutes on my phone or something. But now I'm almost holistically on a screen at any point of the day. There's not a single point where I'm like, other than when I'm, I have a bunch of plants at my house. So other than when I'm dealing with my plants, <laughs> I'm always on technology and it's just so much. Yeah. It is kind of an interesting, it's like almost like a disconnect. I know I'm trying to get better at hand sketching mm-hmm. and practicing and getting better, but it just, we don't use it as much. The one thing I will say is, and I've mentioned it on other podcast episodes now, is the importance of being able to present an idea to a client on a job site yeah. when you don't have your computer. And that's the biggest thing is, as architects, our language, the way we communicate is by drawing. Mm-hmm. And so if we can quickly show something to a client and draw it, mm-hmm. that's so important. And so I think at my old firm, my boss and I, we had a huge age gap. He's in his early 80s. Oh, wow. Yeah. And yeah, so he hand drafted absolutely everything. And he's like, you have to be able to go to a job site and draw something. And he's like, you have to draw it first. Because he said, your computer's not going to be there with you. Because I always would be like, well, let me go to the computer and check and let me draw something. He's like, you have to learn. And so I have a sketching class I'm going to at the oh, end of the month. Nice. But it's 
Yeah, but it takes a lot. So it's so great that you have that foundation. And I think the foundation at school is so important because school, you can have fun in school. It's all about learning different techniques because then you, once you, everything you learn in architecture school, then you can apply it Mm -hmm. once you are in the field. Mm -hmm. And so what was that transition like for you from architecture school into the field? Because sometimes people, like, because everything in school seems to be theory-based and then you hit reality. Yeah. So I think both of the schools that I went to did a decent job of attempting to teach practical skills. So my undergraduate curriculum, you have all of your design studios, which it wasn't very pedagogical as an institute. So you could really just kind of take free reign of the topics and interests that you had, which was really nice. And then my graduate school curriculum, with every studio, you had like a paired MEP type class that went with it. So you had an option to design your studio project. And then in these other classes, you were designing mechanical systems to go into your studio project. So my capstone, Clemson's a non-thesis-based program. So for my capstone, at week 12, we put design pencils down. In the last seven weeks, we designed the structure and the MEP. So that was really nice. And then my undergraduate curriculum required us to co-op in the summer. So every year I was working in the profession, getting like little snippets. So that definitely helped me transition easier. I do still think regardless of all of that, there is a disconnect between what you're doing in school and what you're doing in real life, because it does teach you how to think about mechanical systems and apply mechanical systems. But sometimes they're a little impractical because in academia, you're always pushing that boundary. So you're researching systems that probably would never really actually be used. But so I just think honing in the reality at all levels is kind of the the spot that's pulled me back. And I think I think that academia needs to do a better job of promoting real life systems. Clemson's motto is like, you can design whatever you want, but you have to tell me what the structure is. <laughs> so go ahead and design whatever floating thing you want, but you have to tell me how it's going to stand up. And that was really nice. <laughs> That's good because I know there is, there's a spectrum of architecture. There schools. is. There's the very, the artsy that it's all about, you know, and then it's the practical, make sure it stands, mm-hmm. which I think is important. And it is, you know, you brought up a good point about, you know, you're, designing mechanical systems yes they exist Mm -hmm. but also you don't have a client budget yeah or supply issue (laughs) especially during covid there were so many supply issues where a lot a lot of my projects we had to pivot on what we were going to use because either material was went up 40 percent in cost or supply issues it was on you know a ship out in the pacific yeah (laughs) so you kind of have to start being creative in a sense and that goes back to that problem solving but it is great that they actually incorporated you to learn what kind of mechanical unit to use so that's good yeah, it was really great. I went to graduate school in the South and I, I live in Ohio mm-hmm. and I grew up here. And the one thing I like never really thought about when applying to schools is like the school that you go to is odds are is the area you're going to be designing for in school. So when I went to Bowling Green, everything I was doing was for Northern Ohio, Southern Michigan, snow-based, cold-based. And South Carolina, we're designing for South Carolina and Georgia, places that are really warm and don't need heat and things the same way that we do. So multiple of my projects were like had open air options and displacement Mm -hmm. ventilation and just things that would not work in my real life setting. Granted, you never know where you're going to end up. I knew I was coming back to Ohio. So part of me was like, I wish I would have picked a school that was in somewhere cold (laughs) because I would have designed (laughs) things for cold. But at the end of the day, you're always learning different things. So it doesn't matter. 
But that was something that I always thought back to, like, man, I would never be able to do this at home. (laughs) I think that's going to help you with the NCARB exams. Yeah. The AREs. Because that's a great point, too, is so for the ARE exams, it's for students all across the United States plus some of the territories for the U.S. territories. So someone like me in California, (laughs) and even though I went to school in Chicago, like, I knew a little bit about, you know, you know about frost lines. Yeah. But – learning around like how to build in different parts of the country because the area exams, they give you an example of a project in New York and a project in Miami. You know, I never went to school in either of those things, but you have to learn. So the fact that you've been exposed already to the two different climates is going to be to your advantage for sure. Yeah, for sure. So that's lucky. Because yeah, I have a funny story about the frost line because I went to, so I was in school in Chicago And so I learned about frost lines, you know, it's probably similar to Ohio. I think it was 42 inches is the frost line. So all the foundation just details are just huge. And I had an internship back here in California and my boss is like, okay, can you draw like a footing detail? And I was like, what's the frost line here? And he just looked at me. He's like, aren't you from here? He's like, we don't have frost lines. (laughs) I'm like, are you sure there's not even like an inch or something? He's like, we don't have frost lines here on the coast. I was like, okay. I mean, up in like Tahoe area, you know, where it snows they do, but and I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, why? What is it in Chicago? I'm like, 42 inches. He's like, 42 inches? You have to go down? I'm like, yeah, it's a lot more material. So it's it's really funny that you bring up even like <laughs> it's different climates and then there's the microclimates. But it's going to help you with your exams for sure. The frost line stuff is so funny to me. We are building a barn at our house. Mm-hmm. And for years, the way like these barns could be built was it just had to be as deep as the anchor that was required to hold the metal structure down or a little bit deeper. But recently with the trend of barn dominiums, which I'm not sure if California is seeing that, but in the Midwest, you're seeing these structures where people are building these barns because they're so much more affordable and they're living them in them and turning them into apartments and lofts and things. They changed it to where the, it has to be at the frost depth. So we have a metal barn in the back of our house with 36 inch deep footers for something that's just holding like cars and things. I mean, there's no people are going to be in there and it it just changed literally within like the last year, they just changed the code to implement that. But that's so funny. That is. And I want to ask a question about ARE exams is, did you learn about them in architecture school? I did. So I didn't learn them from my professors. I are like about them, not necessarily content, but I was super involved with AIAS, which has a close relationship with NCARB. So I was always receiving a lot of information at the national level and at the chapter level about NCARB. And I was always super huge on facilitating and passing that information on to my colleagues. So I always made it a point to keep up as much as I could. I was AIS chapter president where I was at. So I just found it super important to be a resource for everyone. I mainly learned about it from AIS. There were like little sessions throughout the four years about what NCARB is and what NAB is because Bowling Green was going through accreditation at the time. So there was a lot of conversations about what it means to have a NAB accredited degree versus a non-NAB accredited degree and like what all these different organizations are. But I, I don't necessarily know if There was a conversation about there being six exams, how long they take, how much of a time commitment they are, how expensive they are. I think those things are kind of lost in the woodworks. 
No, absolutely. That seems to be the consensus is from what I've been hearing, because for me too, it was very similar. It was I heard about it freshman year, like architecture 101. And then after that, I didn't really hear about it <laughs> until I'm like, okay, now I get licensed. Now what? <laughs> so I'm glad that you were exposed to it. And it makes sense with through AIA, yeah, the student chapter of AIA. So that's great. And congratulations on being president. Thanks. Oh thank you. That's yeah. awesome. It was that's- so much fun. Yeah, that's a great networking. You are already on the right path with networking. I met so many people in undergrad. In grad school, I was 100% less involved than I was in undergrad. I was just, by the end of my four years, I was so burnt out from being like Miss AIAS person. By the time I hit grad school, Mm -hmm. I was like, I just need to do school for two years. I can't Mm -hmm. do anything beyond that. But AIS was so much fun. We hosted of the Midwest Quad Conference while we were there. We been went to so many conferences. So many of us on our chapter were on like national committees. So we all met so many people. And the architecture community is small. It may seem mm-hmm. so large when you think of it at the scale of like across the United States, but there really is not that many people that are in yeah. architecture. So the people you meet at these conventions or conferences and things, you're going to know the rest of your life, literally the rest of your life. They're people I still talk to even if it's not frequently, it's like, oh my God, I know someone in Texas. I'm going to let them know I'm coming to Dallas for a few days and see if they want to catch up. And it was such a great experience. I met so many people through it. That's amazing. And it is so true. Like the community, it's getting smaller and it seems seems like even with social media too, even the architecture podcasts that are out there, like (laughs) I'm starting to see this community and I'm like, oh my gosh, like it's really nice because it's we're able to connect as a community. I think because architecture is such a rigorous, not only through the school, but through the exams and then as a career path. It's nice to have people to lean on who you know are going through very similar struggles or, you know, journeys that like, I know, I don't know how your family knows about the ARE exam, what's coming up for you, but explaining to them, hey, I have seven exams. <laughs> Nobody in my family knew that you had to have exams in architecture. Like they're like, my grandma thought I should be a doctor by the time yeah. I finished exams. <laughs> yeah. So it's a lot. My family is not familiar. I feel like my dad is the closest to understanding like the scope of what it all is because he's a mechanical engineer, but he's not, he doesn't have his PE or anything because he's never, he didn't work in buildings. So he never really found it necessary, but he understood the concept of what a licensing exam was and what the requirements attached to it. I have texted every person in my family in like a massive group chat. I'm like, the next 16 weeks of my life, I will not talk to you. I'll be super busy in all my free time. Like, I just don't have <laughs> any space in my brain other than for architecture at the for the next 17 weeks. That is my life. And they're like, why does it take so long? Why is there six of them? And I'm like, you know, I don't know why there's six of them. I don't know what, how it comes to these conclusions of six exams. In Ohio, it's six exams. I think California has an extra one, like an earthquake test or something that we don't take. Although I did hear that there are seismic questions on the Ohio exam. (laughs) Yeah. On the NCARB exams, there's seismic, there's hurricane. That's why if you like, I feel like people in Miami have more of an advantage. So they do a good job of covering as many climates as possible, even if you don't plan on getting licensed. But good for you for telling your family the reality (laughs) of 16 to 17 weeks, you're out. Like, don't talk to me. And that's the mindset that you have to go into it. It's almost like going to grad school again. It is. It absolutely is. And NCARB every year posts NCARB by the numbers. And it's something that I'm always super fascinated by. And I read through it because it shows demographics and data. And they say that if you take more than 10 years to work on your licensing, odds are you're not going to finish your licensing. And I think so many people 
take them so nonchalantly, not in a bad way, not for a bad reason or anything, but just because life gets in the way. And I don't like taking tests. I don't want to take six exams, but I just know if I wait, I'm never going to accomplish it. So I'm just trying to hit the ground running and finish them as fast as I can and backlog whatever I need to beyond that time. No, I think your strategy is a good one, especially coming off of school too, because it definitely, I can't imagine someone 10, 15 years after school going back to the exams because now you have to sit with a book and study and you may have kids around and you may, you know, you may have family issues and it it becomes a lot. And so if you do it closer to when you were in school, I think it's that easier mindset of like, okay, I can sit down and study rather than doing it, you know, later on and you're going to be able to accomplish so much. And it, so it's great that you're using Amber books. I would really recommend them. I use them for PDD, PPD. That's when I discovered Amber books and Michael, incredible, the teaching, the videos, because there's going to come a time when you're studying and you're going to be like, I'm so burnt out. I just don't know what to do. And I have a friend going through the exams, right? Two friends going through the exams right now. And I'm like, so I tell them, even if you have like 10, 15 minutes, put on a podcast, put on a video, or prepare yourself for the next day, like get your flashcards out ready or do something. But like, you're going to feel so better even if you do it like for 10, 15 minutes. And then maybe you'll get back into studying. You're like, oh, maybe I do have a little bit more energy. But yeah, I like your plan. I like your strategy. I'm rooting for you because (laughs) (laughs) I think, yeah, of course. I think, you know, you just your personality. I think you're going to be a great architect and like you love it. And that's another thing is like, you have to love architecture. Yes to get licensed. And it makes me so mad. Of all the things to enjoy, like why <laughs> is this the one thing? Like, so my my sister, I have three sisters. One of them, my youngest one is in engineering. There's one that's my age who does business consulting. And my oldest is in human resources. Every single one of them are going to leave school making more money than me. Every single one of them, other than my engineering sister, spent less time doing schoolwork during school and my oldest sister, who's an HR, she has her life made. Like she's 27. Mm-hmm. She's on her, she's building a house right now. She's making so much money. She's doing so well. And she, she works so, so hard. But I'm just like, of all the career choices, <laughs> why is this the one that I enjoyed? And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to pick something that I like because I have ADHD. If I don't like something, I'm not going to do it. So I have to have a career that I enjoy. And it just so happens to be this one. <laughs> And I think we're lucky in architecture where we can just go on a different path throughout our life whenever we want to, because we have the foundation of architecture. You can do so much with it. It's such a creative, but then you have some engineering background in it and like structural and like there's so much you can do with it. So even if you decide you're like, I don't like, you know, wherever I'm working right now or the, you know, commercial stuff, I'm like, I want to try hospitality or residential. You already have the basis of it. So you can take any path you'd like. Yeah. It is really nice. And I remember my first year, a professor saying like, you can do marketing, you can do this, you can do anything you want with an architecture degree. And at one point I was like, that just feels so unrealistic because different jobs have different requirements. But I do think that the architecture education over the four to seven years, however long you're in school, does teach you so many things from project managing to marketing, graphic skills to where you can tweak those and work on those. And because architecture school specifically, like you go in knowing absolutely nothing about what you're getting yourself Mm -hmm. into almost for every, I mean, I don't know anyone that hit first year and knew like, this is what I'm going to be doing with my time. I think it's just so foreign for everyone. (laughs) And you are forced to learn tools 
successfully so fast. You are you have mm-hmm. to learn how to melt plexiglass. You have to learn how to glue it together. You have to learn Revit, AutoCAD, Photoshop, everything so quickly at a successful level to present whatever you're doing. So I do think it prepares you to understand how to develop tools really quickly. And I think that's what makes it successful. It's not even the background knowledge of project management and design. It's the ability to pick up a tool and learn it as fast as you can in a successful way. And I think that's the big difference. No, absolutely. And I think the presentation skills. Oh, yeah. Being able to present an idea, articulate what you're trying to explain, because that's another thing is you're going to have client meetings, consultant meetings, contractor meetings, vendor meetings, all these things where you're going to have to explain whatever it is that you're designing and you need to be able to articulate it. And so I know, I think one of the years, first year, second year, the one professor was like, all of you say like so much. <laughs> we're going <laughs> to we're gonna practice where nobody says like, because, you know, you're just like, oh, well, like this and like that. And then, you know, and I like the, this. <laughs> and she was like, every, she's like, you guys, this is enough. She's like, we're going to practice today, just not saying like. But that prepared me. And now I don't say like, you know, actually after that class, I stopped saying like, yeah. because it, you know, you start speaking like an adult. And you start speaking, not like a high school or a teenager. So you do mature through it as well. Like it brings a lot of life lessons into the program. I think COVID ruined my speaking. Uh, Oh, (laughs) Uh, So COVID happened my second semester of my junior year. And at that point, I was two and a half years into architecture school. I was presenting like no other. And then the back half of my junior year, we barely presented because everything was on Zoom. Studio was on Zoom for the first time. Structures were on Zoom for the first time. Everything just kind of turned into online submissions with a lot of extra content Mm -hmm. and dissertations and explanations of things. And then my senior year, we were back in person for the most part. And I just remember presenting awfully. I just felt like every single presentation, I'm like, I feel like my sophomore year self could have presented this better. Not because like the project was fine, but because that one semester of not presenting every week of my life made such a big difference. And I think I picked the skill back up once I hit grad school and was presenting in person again. But that half of the year online made such a big difference in my ability to speak. It was crazy. Wow. That is true that once, you know, versus in person versus on on video. And so that definitely makes a difference. One thing I also want to touch base with you on is your podcast. And I want you to share with the listeners because I think your podcast is really cool. (laughs) Thank you. And so share with listeners, like, why did you decide to do the Nearly One Fourth podcast? So I thought up Nearly One Fourth towards the back half of my final semester of graduate school. I was hitting a point where I was leaving Clemson. I was moving back to Cincinnati. I am from Ohio, but I was in Northern Ohio for so long. So a lot of my networking and connections were based in Northern Ohio. And then the other ones were based in like South Carolina and North Carolina and places very far. So I really was nervous about leaving this community of helping one another and learning together and just Mm -hmm. a failure community, essentially a community where you can fail around and be comfortable. And then I love having conversations with people and learning from other people. So I wanted to have some type of option to have communications with people in architecture, specifically women in architecture. And then another thing that was going on at the time in my personal life is I was planning my wedding and I just got married in 2023. And for months, I went back and forth on if I was going to change my name or not. And every single person I talked to had different opinions about it, obviously. 
but they were all opinions of that didn't have nuance. They were all like, oh, you cannot change your name. Like you're going to be a professional woman. You cannot change your name or you have to change your name. Like this is your family. This is this, that, and the other. So I really wanted to understand what it was like for professional women to work through an environment that is traditionally a male-dominated field. And for years, NCARB made it really hard to change your name. They recently made it easier. So just little things like that like made me want to understand what women before us who had it much harder, I would argue, than like I do now went through and how they managed some of those situations. So all of those elements together kind of formed this desire to have these conversations with people. And it birthed nearly one fourth over time. (laughs) And can you share with the listeners why it's called nearly one fourth? Yeah. So nearly one fourth of licensed architects in the United States are women. So it's about 22 to 23% now. So of the 150,000-ish licensed architects, only 22 to 23% of them are women. And I think it is changing rapidly. And I think platforms like yours and platforms like mine and Caitlin Brady's and all of these platforms that are highlighting the experience of women in architecture hopefully are going to shed light as to why so many women stop pursuing licensure. When I graduated with half of my class in undergrad and in grad were women, and that's not a new statistic. That's been like that for years now. So why is it that 50% of us are graduating with our male counterparts? And what is it along the journey? Which is going to be many different factors. And some of it is personal interest, not enjoying it anymore. But some of it is going to be profession related. So what parts of our profession are hindering or making it harder for women to pursue licensure when we're achieving at equal, if not higher rates in school? I mean, this just makes no sense. So It doesn't. No. So, and thank you for sharing that because it is, I held my class also, we had 50%. I think we had maybe like 53% women, but then once I joined the workforce, it was me being the only female, except maybe the interior designer or the client at the job site. Yeah. And that's a huge difference. I co-opt every year. So I I've worked at probably six to seven different firms and every single one had a different experience of what it was like to be a woman in architecture The first one, I was a a first-year student. I was like 18 or 19 years old. I couldn't even believe they hired me to begin with. I'm glad they did because I needed it to graduate. But I was hired at the same time as a first-year or second-year male student from a different university. In the Cincinnati area, almost everyone is from the University of Cincinnati or Miami. So there's just like a little niche group of people. And I was from neither of those schools, from both scenarios of my education. And my first internship, I did a ton of red lines. But when I had a lack of work, my expectation was materials library and helping interiors. And like the flip side, like he was not expected to do that. Like he was not expected to be in the materials library and he was not expected to be doing helping interiors with work. He was expected to work with the architects and find more things to do. And I don't know what the reasoning behind that was. I don't know if there's tradition, but then after that, I worked for two different small firms in a period of three years. And I don't even think they thought about it. Like, I don't think they thought about the fact that I was a woman or the fact that like they were men. I think the smaller firms I worked for, they had a set way of how they did things. One of them was owned by brothers. So one brother did the business stuff and the other brother did the design stuff and everyone else did the field measuring and the site visits and working with the contractors. So that was, that was pretty equal. And then where I left a few months ago, My team specifically, there was a very clear issue with giving women more responsibility on our team. And that is not the reason that I left, but there would be 
new opportunities for our team and they would farm it out to some of the younger men on different teams rather than giving us the opportunities to learn those things. So, and those are things I try not to acknowledge. I try to give everyone like some type of grace because the world is hard. Most people have no ill intention when they're doing their day-to-day life, but it felt very clear that me and some of my peers were not going to get the opportunities that we were hoping to get there. So I, I left and the place I'm at now, I mean, I've been giving more opportunities in two months than I had in the five months at where I was at previously. And I know that's not going to change. Like they are hitting the ground running with me. And that that's what I want. Like I want responsibility. I want to learn. And that, that failing is the only way to learn, like to really learn. Mm-hmm. And there was just no opportunity for that. And it it felt very clear why at the previous place. So I think a lot of it comes to firm culture. And unfortunately, there's not a way for us to be like, this is how your firm needs to operate because that's not right. Like firms need to figure out what works for them, but there needs to be some type of understanding of why it trickles down this way. Like how do we get to this point Mm -hmm. of leaders thinking that we're less capable of accomplishing the same task? So you're farming it out to someone else on a completely different team with his own set of responsibilities and things to do. <laughs> no, absolutely. And it's so true. And I'm, I think you're also in a, sounds like you're at a great firm while you're going through your ARES because not only do you need support at home, mm-hmm. you also need support at work because there's going to be times where you're just like studying or something. And if you have the support at your office, that is going to make a world of difference yeah. too. So it sounds like you have just set yourself up You've told your family, you know, <laughs> that you're not accessible, but it sounds like you have a firm that is supporting you and that is wants you to become licensed and is advocating for you and is giving you experience that is only going to help you with your mm-hmm. exams. Yeah. So it's it's a perfect scenario. Yeah, they're a super cool firm. They're a place I actually interviewed for when I was looking for my first job. And I ended up like between the firm I work for now and the firm I left. And for whatever reason, like something about the firm I left, like caught my attention. I was like, you know, that's right. I want to, I think part of it was economic. I didn't realize the firm that I'm working for now was as large as it is. I thought it was significantly smaller. And at at 2023, like the last year or two, everyone's been like, where's the economy going to go? What's, what's it going to be like with the profession? So I was really nervous (laughs) about that. But the founder of the firm I work for recently passed, but he, he was from Cuba and he worked side by side with Fidel Castro. And if, if you're unfamiliar with Cuban architecture history, architecture is the most prestigious profession in Cuba. You can't put a two by four in your yard without getting a permit. So you're required to do an arch- have an architect for everything. And the, the story is a lot more significant than I'm going to go into. But at one point he was like, I need to leave. I need to leave Cuba. Like this is not a safe place for me and my family and so he he left Cuba and came to the States after a long, long journey of getting out of a communist regime that was Cuba mm-hmm. at the time. And he ended up in Ohio and he started this firm. So I think everything about it, the culture from the ground up has been about perseverance and just working hard and being understanding of the community that you're in. And I think that reigns like true, like from the leadership all the way down to junior staffers like myself. And they've just been, they've been so supportive within my first few months there, I'm like, these are, I am getting licensed this year. Like you can help me or you cannot help me, but this is what I'm going to do. And 
me and a, a friend of mine, like we sent him a proposal for Amber Book and we found like 15 people in our office from young people to older people that have been practicing for a while. There's 15 of us now studying and they're providing Amber Book for us, which is really nice because it's so expensive. It is so yes. incredibly expensive. <laughs> and I get it. Like I'm sure it was a lot of money to make, but so expensive to be by yourself paying for Amber Book. So they they just have been providing like resource after resource to help a collective of us achieve licensure, which has been so nice. So I appreciate being at a place that just gives people individual freedoms and abilities to tackle their ambition and while simultaneously pursuing a collective goal that is the firm that I work for. So it's been really nice. No, it seems like you have set yourself up for success with the AREs. You've got the company, you know, your firm behind you, the firm culture at your your firm. Sounds perfect. Mm-hmm. It sounds ideal and you're going to succeed. So I wish you all the luck in thank your you. ARE journey. And thank you so much for coming on from the Honeycomb podcast. And where can listeners find you? So Nearly One Fourth, um, we have a website, www.nearlyonefourth.com. That is probably the least frequent thing I update. I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if you want to listen, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And then we have an Instagram at nearly one underscore fourth on Instagram. I'll provide links in the show notes. Haley, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of From the Honeycomb Podcast. As we conclude, I want to express my gratitude for joining me in today's episode. I hope you have found it insightful and inspiring. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to rate, review, and click that like button so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to share this with your friends. You can follow me on Instagram at From the Honeycomb Podcast. And you can also further your support of From the Honeycomb by visiting the patron link provided in the show notes. Your contribution helps make more episodes possible. And lastly, don't forget to subscribe to my monthly newsletter, A Spark of Positive Energy, that comes out on the 7th of each month. Thank you so much and see you next Friday.